Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Kabul, 1973. The prison where criminals were sent to rot in Afghanistan. 29-year-old Charles Sobrage could hardly breathe in his cell, the air more heat than oxygen. Every inhale singed his lungs. Sitting in solitary confinement only made it worse. He had to escape. It wasn't the first time Charles found himself needing to escape. He had done it less than a year earlier in India. That time, he'd been able to drug his guard. But to scare the unflappable Afghanis, the theatrics needed to be escalated. In Afghanistan, prisoners, even those in solitary, are responsible for their own food. So Charles employed a runner called a butcher to get things like bread or rice or tea. Today, he instructed his butcher to bring him a syringe and a glass. Once he had what he needed, Charles turned to his cellmate for help. Using the syringe, the cellmate drew enough of Charles's blood to fill the glass to the brim. Charles smiled at his cellmate, toasted him with the glass, then drank the entire thing. Then he called for the guards, moaning and writhing in pain. By the time they reached his cell, Charles was vomiting blood. Prison officials rushed him to the hospital, thinking he had a bleeding ulcer. While he recovered in the hospital, Charles waited for his moment to strike. After a few days, he managed to slip a sedative into his guard's cup of tea. Once the guard passed out, Charles broke out of his shackles and walked out the front door of the hospital. It was one of many audacious escapes for Charles Sobrage, earning his nickname, The Serpent. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. 
Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Today, we begin our dive into the life and crimes of Charles Sobrage. He became infamous in the 1970s for targeting Western tourists along the so-called Hippie Trail in Southeast Asia. This week, we'll explore how Charles's neglectful upbringing led him to a life of manipulation and small-time scams across the globe. We'll see how whenever he got caught, which was quite often, he managed to escape jail almost instantly. Next week, we'll discuss Charles's most active period in the mid-70s as he graduated from con artist to serial killer. We'll see how he selected his targets and earned a new moniker, the Bikini Killer. Thief, con artist, serial killer. Charles Sobrage was all of these things and more. Though he ran scams throughout his life, his most notorious cons were run along the roads from Thailand to Turkey. Charles played the helpful local, posing as a gem dealer to manipulate unsuspecting Western tourists and scam them out of their money. When the time was right, he would rob them blind, oftentimes stealing their identity in the process. Throughout the early 1970s, Charles restlessly moved from city to city, perfecting his simple yet effective con. By 1975, he'd recruited a cadre of followers, young men and women willing to help him run his cons. And if any mark became suspicious of their activities, Charles made sure they kept their mouth shut forever. Charles Sobrage was born Hatchand Bonani Goramuk Charles Sobrage on April 6, 1944, in Saigon, French Indochina, known today as Vietnam. Charles's mother was a shop girl named Chan Luang Phun, also known as Noi. His father was a wealthy Indian textile merchant. But their union didn't last long. When Charles was two, Noi left Charles's father after she learned he had another wife back in India. A few years after their separation, she fell in love with a French army lieutenant named Alphonse Daru. They married in September of 1948 when Charles was four. But Charles rejected his stepfather. He dreamed of the day that he would be reunited with his real father, his real family. He got his wish in 1949. His stepfather was relocated back to France and five-year-old Charles was sent to live with his father. 
but the reunion didn't go as he'd expected. Just as his mother had done, Mr. Sabraj had remarried. He'd started a new family. Charles struggled to compete for attention in the growing household and felt neglected. When children are neglected by their parents during such an important development period, it can have lasting negative effects. According to psychiatrist Bruce Perry, these effects can include increased aggression and cruelty. He added that one of the most disturbing elements of this aggression is that it is often accompanied by a detached cold lack of empathy. Charles started showing signs of this aggression over the next three years. He joined a gang of street thugs who attacked and robbed unsuspecting tourists. When Charles's mother and stepfather returned to Saigon in 1952, Mr. Sabraj immediately returned Charles to their care, washing his hands of his son. Charles's behavior only worsened. His stepfather formally adopted him, hoping that security might help him settle down, but it had no impact. Worse, as Charles got older, he started showing early signs of Machiavellianism, the psychological trait based around manipulation. His favorite victim was his half-brother, André. Eight years younger than Charles, André looked to his brother as an idol. It made him the perfect target for Charles's manipulations. Once, Charles convinced André to rob a shopkeeper. When he was caught, André confessed to their mother that Charles had put him up to it. When she confronted her older son, he scoffed, I can always find an idiot to do what I wanted. In 1959, when Charles was 15, the family moved from Saigon to France. It did nothing to curb his penchant for scheming. That December, he tried to make a few extra bucks selling Christmas cards on the street. But his sales tactics were aggressive. He was arrested for threatening people with a knife when they refused to buy one of his cards. Trying to help her son find some direction in his life, Noi used connections within the Vietnamese community in Paris to get Charles a job in a restaurant. For a few months, 15-year-old Charles bounced from one Parisian restaurant to another, either working as a busboy or kitchen hand, peeling the vegetables and washing the dishes. Charles hated the work, but Noi refused to let her son slide. Near the end of 1960, Charles was a busboy at a restaurant called La Coupole, a favorite of the rich and famous Parisian elite. According to journalist Thomas Thompson, from time to time, Charles caught glimpses of high society from his place in the back. Those few seconds as the kitchen door flapped open was enough to inspire Charles to strive for more, to be rich like them. Though, he didn't change his methods. Charles just needed a bigger scheme. During a shift at La Coupole in 1961, Charles was summoned from his post in the back. Someone had requested to see him. When he emerged from the kitchens, Charles saw an Indian man waiting for him. The stranger called him by his Indian name, Gorumuk. Charles realized he was staring at his father. He couldn't have been more thrilled. 
He always knew deep down that his father loved him and would one day reclaim him. As they reconnected, Charles told his father how horrible his life with Noy and his stepfather was. He said they were abusive, claiming that they'd forced him to quit school to work in restaurant kitchens for slave wages. Charles swore that Noy showed him no love and threw him to the wolves. Journalist Thomas Thompson aptly called it an Oliver Twist tale. Mr. Sabraj bought it all, hook, line, and sinker. He vowed to save his son from this awful fate. In the spring of 1961, 17-year-old Charles returned to his father's home in Saigon. But he had even more siblings to compete with than before. His father now had nine other children. Within weeks, Charles was back to his old attention-seeking ways, leaving work early and not showing up to work at all until he was fired. Soon after, he was arrested on suspicion of car theft. Mr. Sabraj believed that his son's rebellion was caused by a lack of identity. Technically, he was a man without a country. Not Vietnamese, not Indian, not French. He reasoned that if Charles was officially declared an Indian citizen, perhaps that identity could help straighten him out. But the citizenship process was long. To be considered, Charles had to stay on Indian soil for a year. But Charles didn't take kindly to being banished half a world away to live with some distant cousins. Twice he attempted to return to Saigon, but his father warned him, if Charles didn't stay in India for the year, he would wash his hands of his son for good. Yet, for reasons that have never been made clear, by the time Charles returned to Bombay, his father had preemptively decided to cut him off financially, regardless of whether Charles stayed in India or not. When he found out, Charles desperately telegrammed his mother for help. Noy agreed to pay for Charles to return to France, but she swore it was the last time she'd help him. He'd proven too many times that he was more trouble than he was worth. Back in France, Charles returned to restaurant work, but he still hated the menial nature. He longed to be one of the patrons in the front of the house, not a grunt in the back. In search of this more exclusive lifestyle, Charles returned to crime. He was eventually arrested for car theft and sentenced to six months in prison. When he was released, he asked his mother for financial help once more, but she refused. She'd meant what she said. She was done trying to help her son. The proclamation was a blow to Charles. In less than a year, his father and mother had completely forsaken him. At least, that's how Charles saw it. More than ever, he was on his own. He chose to look at this abandonment as an opportunity. If he was truly on his own now, that meant he could do things his own way. He was going to survive by any means necessary. Coming up, Charles Sabraj commits himself to a life of crime.
Now, back to the story. After years of being passed back and forth between his mother and father across France, Vietnam and India, 20-year-old Charles Sabraj came to the realization that neither of his parents wanted him. In a way, their abandonment was the sign Charles needed to commit himself to a life of crime. He moved to Paris in 1963 and doubled down on his delinquency. There, he met a fellow Vietnamese criminal we'll call Laurent. While living on the streets of Paris, the two decided it would be safer if they worked together. Laurent became something of a criminal mentor to Charles. He even taught Charles karate as both a means of survival and philosophy. For the next several months, the two pulled off small-time robberies to fund their lives on the streets. Eventually, Laurent introduced Charles to a man who forged identity papers. For the right price, Charles could buy a Swiss passport, or a Dutch student visa, or an American driver's license. Whatever he wanted. Charles was taken aback. A man without a country, without a family. He marveled at the prospect of being anyone he chose. All he needed was 3,000 francs and he could make a whole new life for himself. Over the course of six weeks, Charles committed at least 11 robberies to secure the funds. But just as he was in sight of his goal, the law caught up with him. He was pulled over for speeding. The police officer realized the car Charles was driving was stolen. In court, Charles tried to plead innocence. His crimes were simply the product of his circumstances. But he found no sympathy from the French courts. They sentenced him to three years in Poissy prison. According to journalist Thomas Thompson, it wasn't until Charles was let out of the courtroom that the reality of three years behind bars hit him. The prospect of confinement terrified the young man. But he knew he couldn't show any emotion, couldn't lament or wallow in self-pity. Hoysi was one of the more notorious prisons in France, known for housing some of the country's worst criminals. The lanky young Charles could have been subjected to violence at the hands of the other inmates. But thanks to Laurent's karate lessons, he knew how to defend himself. Prisoners in Poissy were forbidden from decorating their cells or keeping any personal items. Yet Charles was allowed some small favors. It's unclear exactly what lies he used to gain favor with the prison priest, but whatever he said, Charles was able to smooth talk his way into keeping books in his cell. He was given volumes of Voltaire, Molière, and various other tomes on philosophy and theology. With all that free time, he digested everything he could get his hands on, expanding his vocabulary across four languages. Charles turned the prison into his first real home. In 1966, he began a friendship with Félix Descon, a wealthy Frenchman whose family had made their fortune in forestry. 
Descone followed in his family's tradition of using their wealth to help the less fortunate. However, unlike his family members, he did more than just write a check. He volunteered directly in the prison, helping inmates with correspondence and legal issues. For some, like Charles, he just acted as a friendly ear. In the autumn of 1966, 22-year-old Charles shared his family woes and his life history with 39-year-old Descone. But the wealthy man wasn't immediately taken in. By that point, Poissy's priest had come to realize that Charles couldn't tell the difference between truth and lie. He warned Descone to guard himself against Charles's words. But Charles's story of his tumultuous upbringing was hard to ignore. He swore that after two years in prison, all he wanted was the love and respect of his father. Yet he'd feared he'd damaged the relationship beyond repair. He hoped Descone could help him mend that rift somehow, acting as an intermediary between father and son. Whether Charles was really looking to reconcile with his father is up for debate. He may have simply wanted to curry Descone's sympathy. In fact, it's not entirely clear what Charles saw in Descone outside of someone new to possibly manipulate. Regardless, his tactics worked. For the rest of Charles's prison sentence, he and Descone were friends. They traded letters and spent long hours talking. Descone did try to help Charles reconcile with his parents, but was met with failure. Neither of them wished to speak to Charles again. However, Descone had a more important victory. He was able to convince the French government to recognize Charles as a citizen. For the first time, Charles had a true national identity. In the summer of 1968, 24-year-old Charles completed his prison sentence. As he stepped past Poissy's walls, he had not only his French citizenship, but also a place to live. Félix Descone offered to house him while he got on his feet. Charles even managed to land a job as a fire extinguisher salesman. Continuing his rehabilitation, Charles also found love. He met a young Parisian girl named Chantelle Compagnon at a party, and they began to see each other regularly. But Chantelle's parents weren't too pleased by Charles. He wasn't the type of man they envisioned their daughter with. Trying to impress them, Charles claimed that he came from a wealthy Vietnamese family. But just saying he came from money did little to ease their fears. He needed to show that he had enough means to take care of Chantelle. Of course, Charles was actually penniless. But he was already in the midst of planning his next con. While living with Descone, Charles was introduced to a whole new class of citizen. He was invited to parties, meeting all of Descone's wealthy friends. As he was escorted through their lavish homes, treated to world-class dinners, all Charles could think about was how to make money off these people. The opportunity had practically fallen into his lap. Charles started drawing maps of the different estates he visited. 
he noted the best entrances and exits, as well as which rooms in the house contained the most valuables. Then he offered to sell the heist maps to some ex-cons he'd met in Poissy Prison for 50% of the take, plus a finder's fee. It was the perfect plan. His friends took all the risk, while he made a handsome profit. But his scheme was derailed before the first robbery ever took place. In August of 1968, Charles took Chantel to a casino in Deauville, about 125 miles west of Paris. But the night of fun quickly soured when Charles lost several thousand francs at the tables. On the drive back home, Charles blamed Chantel for his bad fortune. Machiavellians, like all manipulators, refuse to take responsibility for their actions. Psychiatrist Abigail Brenner writes, A manipulator avoids responsibilities for his own conduct by blaming others for causing it. It's not that manipulative people don't understand what responsibility is. They do. A manipulative person just sees nothing wrong with refusing to take responsibility for their actions. As Charles drove, he became more and more enraged at the events of the evening. Suddenly, he slammed his foot on the gas pedal, accelerating wildly, the car weaving over the road from the speed. Desperate to appease him, Chantel blurted out that she wanted to get married. She didn't care what her parents thought of Charles. She loved him and wanted to spend her life with him. Charles looked over at his now fiancé and laughed. He took his foot off the gas, allowing the car to slow down. But just as soon as he'd relaxed, Charles was beset by a new problem. In his rearview mirror, flashing police lights, and the car he was driving was stolen. Instead of pulling over, Charles blasted the gas pedal once more, leading the police on a high-speed chase through the dark French countryside. In his panic, Charles lost control of the car. He clipped the side of a fence and crashed in a field. The police pulled Charles from the mangled wreckage and immediately placed him in handcuffs. At trial, Chantel testified on his behalf, defending his actions and professing her love for him. Even Felix Descone, who by now had begun to question his associations with Charles, came to his aid. He paid for a psychiatric evaluation to prove the courts that Charles wasn't well. Thanks to their actions, Charles was sentenced to only eight months in prison. He was released on June of 1969 and married Chantel that October. But even with a new bride and a second prison rap, Charles wasn't willing to confine his life to the straight and narrow path. Behind Chantel's back, he continued running schemes with friends he'd made in Poissy Prison. Over the course of a few months, he pulled a string of robberies, passed around bad checks and stole from family members. But he suddenly got a wake-up call in the spring of 1970. Chantel was pregnant. 
the revelation sent Charles into something of a panic. If French authorities finally caught up to him, what would happen to the baby? Who would take care of it? Would they be doomed to a life of abandonment like he was? Charles decided that his small family needed to flee France immediately. He asked Felix Descone if he could borrow an MG sports car for a few days. Their journey would be much longer than that. Charles planned to drive all the way from Paris to Saigon. He would beg his father for help one more time, hoping he'd be moved by the news of his grandchild. But they only made it as far as Bombay. Chantel, now eight months pregnant, couldn't travel anymore. With the baby coming any day, Charles desperately searched for a new way to make money. And by the time Chantel gave birth to a baby girl on November 15, 1970, Charles was fully immersed in a clever little car scam. Between his time in high-priced French restaurants and his tenure as Descone's house guest, Charles had learned the ways of high society. In Bombay, he put on enough airs to be accepted into India's upper class. He discovered that many wealthy men were fond of European cars. They were a true status symbol among the elite. Foreign cars were hard to come by in India, made even more expensive by exorbitant taxes and tariffs, and bogged down by paperwork that took time to process. Charles realized he could be the man to bypass the red tape. He asked each client for a down payment of $2,000. Then, Charles flew to a Middle Eastern city like Tehran, which had a robust black market for stolen European cars without the red tape of so much paperwork. Charles would legally purchase a stolen car for a fraction of the price, then bring it back to Bombay. Once home, he brought the car to a mechanic friend who stripped the vehicle of its insides. Charles brought the chopped car out to the woods, making it look like it had been stolen. Then, he reported the theft to the police. When the police recovered the car, it was in such a state that it was marked as a total loss, something to be settled with insurance. Charles would cry over the damage and reluctantly sign ownership over to the police so the scraps could be auctioned off. Then, on the day of the scheduled auction, Charles would secretly bid on the car in the client's name and buy it back for next to nothing. Then, he'd return to the mechanic, who restored all of the stripped parts until it was good as new. And now, through the charade of the auction, the client was the legal owner of the vehicle, free and clear of any red tape. For this help, they paid Charles $20,000. Charles pulled off his car scheme at least five times, if not more. For the first time, he had more than enough money to live on, easily providing for Chantel and the new baby but the extra cash eventually burned a hole in his pocket. He found his way into casinos in Bombay, and what started off as casual fun quickly developed into a full-blown addiction. 27-year-old Charles spent 
days at the Baccarat tables, cycling through winning and losing streaks, chasing his next big payday. When he did well, he showered Chantel and the baby with expensive gifts from his winnings. When he lost, he immediately left town, flying to Tehran, Karachi, Kabul or Istanbul to find another car to run through his scheme. By the spring of 1971, Charles's reputation at the tables was catching up to him. In April, he decided to take some time away from Bombay. He took Chantal on a vacation to Hong Kong and sent the baby to stay with Chantal's parents. For six weeks, they were submerged in the high life, so much so that in June, they decided to make the move permanent. But even in a new city, Charles couldn't stay away from the casinos. And soon, his fortune turned for the worst. Day after day, he lost more and more money. Eventually, he owed close to $50,000. He started to pawn off the jewelry he'd gifted Chantel when his fortunes were high, but it wasn't enough. And the casino officials demanded payment one way or another. Feeling the walls closing in on him, Charles desperately looked for a new scheme. He needed money to either pay off his debts or, at the very least, pay for his escape. In the summer of 1971, 27-year-old Charles heard about a potential gambit from some of his French ex-con friends. Another criminal, who we'll call Jerome, was planning a jewel heist in Delhi. The score would not only cover Charles's debt with the casinos, but leave him sitting comfortably for quite a while. Without even blinking, Charles said yes. He should have said no. Coming up, Charles attempts to rob the Ashoka Hotel in Delhi. Now, back to the story. In the early 1970s, Charles Sabraj was nearly $50,000 in debt to casinos in Hong Kong. He needed to do something to make money, fast. In the summer of 1971, he heard about a potential opportunity orchestrated by a con man named Jerome. Charles immediately agreed to help Jerome with a jewel heist in Delhi. By October, 27-year-old Charles, Jerome, and two French accomplices were holed up at the Ashoka Hotel in Delhi, India. Their plan was simple. On the first floor of the hotel was a fine jewellery store. During the night, when the store was closed, Charles and the others would drill through the ceiling of the store, lower themselves down, raid the cases and slink into the night. Then they would each take different routes out of Delhi and regroup in Tehran. Charles was entrusted with carrying the stolen goods out of the city. But things didn't go as planned. On the night of the planned heist, the men spent hours trying to work their way through the ceiling, breaking drill bit after drill bit. They didn't realize that the ceiling to the jewelry store was made of marble. At one point, Charles suggested trying acid to melt through the stone. But nothing worked. The marble 
was impenetrable. For three days, they tried to come up with a new plan. Charles grew agitated. He needed the money and he needed it now. Eventually, he called down to the store and asked if he could see some of the gems in his room. He described to the owner that he was interested in buying, asking if he had anything like it in stock, knowing full well exactly what was in the store's case. Less than an hour later, the store owner arrived with a box full of precious gems. Charles greeted him, then shoved a pistol in his face, demanding the keys to the shop. Jerome and the others bound and gagged the store owner and threw him in the bathroom. Charles hurried down to the jewellery store for the raid. Thirty minutes later, he returned with a case full of gems and $10,000 in cash. Then the men made their escape. Charles tried to act casual as he waited in the customs line at the airport, the cash and jewels in a luggage bag in his hand. But just as he neared the front of the line, Charles saw a rush of police scrambling through the gates. At the front of the pack was the jewellery store owner. He had miraculously escaped his ties. Charles had to act quickly. While he hated the thought of being hunted by Hong Kong casino gangsters, spending time in an Indian prison was a much more terrifying prospect. He could always find another way to repay his debts, but not if he was rotting in a jail cell. Charles calmly set down the bag of gems, excused himself from the line, and walked to the restroom. Then he slipped out of the airport and headed to the train station. He bought a ticket to Bombay, where Chantel was waiting for him. But his attempt at avoiding jail time failed. Less than two weeks after returning to Bombay, Charles was arrested for selling stolen cars. While in custody, Charles was somehow recognized as part of the Ashoka Hotel robbery. Fearing that the Indian courts would throw the book at him, Charles was determined to escape before his case went to trial. One afternoon, Charles suddenly keeled over, screaming in pain. He hoped the guards would take him to a hospital where it would be easier to break free. But Charles got more than he bargained for. The prison doctors diagnosed him with appendicitis and scheduled him for surgery. After a pointless appendectomy, Charles was chained to his hospital bed, still under close guard. But because he was in a medical facility, Chantal was able to come visit him. Charles recruited her to aid in his escape. The next time she came to the hospital, Chantel brought a vial of chloroform. She slipped it into one of the guard's tea and waited for him to pass out. Once the guard was fully asleep, she stole the keys to the handcuffs and unshackled Charles. Then she took his place in the hospital bed to avoid suspicion as long as possible, giving Charles a head start to freedom. Still, Charles didn't make it very far. At the train station, Charles's weak appearance drew the attention of a police officer. Still recovering from surgery, Charles didn't have the energy to run. He quickly surrendered. Even worse, 
Chantel was arrested as his accomplice. Her cries of innocence fell on deaf ears. But she was at least able to convince a friend to pay for her bail. Once outside, Chantel contacted Charles's father to beg for his bail money. Miraculously, Mr. Sabrage agreed. Once Charles was free, he and Chantel immediately fled India. For the rest of 1972, Charles bounced around from city to city. He scammed and robbed in Rome, Copenhagen, Paris, Bulgaria, and even Yugoslavia. In the fall of that year, Charles and Chantel were reunited with their baby, who they hadn't seen in over a year. Seeing their daughter again, seeing how much she'd missed during their life on the run, was a breaking point for Chantel. After years of living in hotel rooms and waiting for Charles in prisons, Chantel had had enough. On Christmas Eve 1972, she left Charles and took their daughter to France to live with her parents. She eventually filed for divorce and swore to never see Charles Sabrage again. To Charles, Chantal was just one more person who abandoned him. In a letter to Felix Descone, he brushed off the end of his marriage. Charles claimed that he was the one leaving Chantal. He discovered an affair with another man and sent his wife away. But Descone didn't believe it for one second. With Chantal gone, Charles needed a new partner by his side. Likely, he was looking for someone else to help him in his schemes. So, in the summer of 1973, Charles reached out to the first person he'd managed to manipulate, his younger half-brother, André. It had been years since anyone in Charles's family had really spoken to Charles. He sent sporadic postcards here and there, but no one knew what he had been up to for the last four years, let alone that he'd escaped from prison. But in this time of silence, André still idolized his older brother. So when Charles suddenly called André and asked if he would come to Istanbul with him, he didn't hesitate to say yes. André had no idea how deeply vested his brother was in criminal activity. He found it strange when Charles asked if he knew karate or how many languages he spoke. Charles, by now, had mastered English, French, Vietnamese, German, Spanish, Italian, and a serviceable amount of Greek and Hindi. He could run a con in practically any language. Charles started grooming André to be his new partner in crime. While Chantel had been taken in by Charles's charms and affection, André was captivated by his older brother's seemingly endless wisdom. Charles spouted tenets of philosophy, theology and psychology. Nietzsche, Jung, Voltaire. He explained how all of this studying had taught him how to read people. In fact, Charles had spent a great deal of time reading André himself, trying to determine whether he was trustworthy or not. He confessed that, for the longest time, he blamed their parents for his misfortune. But he now realized he could turn that pain into strength. 
he had the power to change his status in life. He didn't have to toil in squalor. And neither did Andre. As long as he did exactly what Charles told him to do. Dr. Dale Hartley, a professor of social psychology at the University of West Virginia, identified several tactics that Machiavellians use for manipulation. These include charm, friendliness, self-disclosure, guilt, and, if necessary, pressure. Charles's self-disclosure worked. Andre was intoxicated by his intelligent brother. When Charles finally asked if he would swear loyalty to him, Andre, of course, said yes. It was only then that Charles finally revealed that he was a thief. Charles quickly taught Andre the ins and outs of life as a conman. One of their greatest assets was their exotic looks. Both men could easily pass as locals throughout the Middle East and Asia. By taking on this role, they could prey on unsuspecting tourists, offering to help them navigate the foreign city they were in. Then, at the right moment, the brothers robbed their charges blind. Throughout 1973, Charles and Andre roamed around Greece and Turkey, pretending to be helpful locals and robbing tourists. While in Athens, Charles set his sights on a particularly wealthy-looking Egyptian. If the score was big enough, the brothers could live off this con for weeks. They followed him back to his hotel. Then Andre lured him to the downstairs bar. Within a few hours, the man was incapacitated, either from too much alcohol or from drugs. While he slept at the bar, Charles and Andre ransacked the Egyptian's hotel room. Unfortunately, the score proved less fruitful than Charles had thought. Though they got the Egyptian's passport, all they found were a few thousand francs and some souvenirs. A few weeks later, Charles and Andre decided to try their luck in Beirut. But as Charles and Andre rode a bus out of Athens, they were miraculously spotted by the Egyptian man. He called the police, the bus was surrounded, and Charles and Andre found themselves locked behind bars. In the years that Charles had made his living as a thief, he'd studied various countries' penal codes. While Charles languished in the Athens jail, he heard that he'd also been connected to a string of robberies in Istanbul. And he knew that ending up in a Turkish prison was far worse than staying in a Greek one. According to Greek law, any prisoner could be kept in jail for a year and a day before going to trial. However, if the trial hadn't commenced by then, the prisoner was released. To buy themselves more time, the brothers denied their involvement in the robberies. With only the word of the Egyptian man against them, the police were forced to conduct a more thorough investigation. In the meantime, Charles devised a plan to get them out of lockup. He realized that the prison guards had no idea that they were brothers. They thought they were just a couple of Southeast Asian-looking men in Greece. Charles convinced Andre that they should switch identities. Andre didn't have a major criminal record like Charles, so he would probably receive nothing more than a slap on the wrist for robbing the Egyptian. Posing as Andre, 
Charles would walk out of prison first. Then, when the coast was clear, Andre would reveal to the warden that they had released the wrong man. He was the real Andre. Andre was reluctant. A few months earlier, he was living a good life in France. Now, he was in a Greek prison. What if the plan failed? What if they received a harsher punishment than expected? But Charles continued to needle him. When the time came and the prison guards called out Charles's name, Andre stepped forward. Charles couldn't have been more pleased. But months passed and Andre wasn't released as they expected. After a failed attempt to dig out of prison, Charles decided to go back to the well. He faked an illness. On his way to the hospital, Charles pickpocketed a bottle of perfume from an old woman as he waited to enter the prison van. When the time was right, he lit the bottle on fire and threw it like a Molotov cocktail. During the chaos, Charles slipped away. When word got back to Andre of Charles's escape, he knew he couldn't wait any longer. He asked to see the warden and told him that he was the real Andre and that his brother, Charles Sabraj, was the one who escaped. The Greeks didn't buy it. Instead, they handed Andre over to the Turks and Andre was sentenced to 18 years of hard labor. The escape from the Greek prison can be seen as something of a turning point for Charles Sabraj. At no point during his freedom did he try to help his brother or right the situation in any way. It seems to have become the moment when Charles realized more than ever that if someone provided no more value to him, it was easier to just get rid of them. Chantel and the baby were albatrosses around his neck for too long. Andre didn't have the smarts to figure out an escape. If Charles wanted to be successful, he had to be ruthless in his schemes. And by 1975, he found that callousness. If someone became worthless to him, he didn't just cut them out of his life, he murdered them. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. Next week, we'll continue our story of Charles Sabraj as he recruits an entire gang of con artists, terrorizing Western travelers along the hippie trail, leaving a trail of bodies in his wake. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Con Artists for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. 
This episode of Con Artists was written by Joe Guerra with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden.